Welcome to LSE, and I'm delighted to see so many people here on a Friday night for going a pint in the pub to be here. It's impressive. Um, this evening's event is part of the LSE Shape the World Festival, which has been taking place all of this week and finishes tomorrow. Um, it's part of a whole year of activities at the LSE, um, exploring how social science can tackle global issues. Um, I'm Beth Crayling. I'm Senior Policy Fellow here in the Department of Health Policy, and I'm Deputy Chair of the Global Health Initiative, um, which is an interdisciplinary research unit um, uh, looking at global health across the LSE and has helped organise um, this afternoon's um, event, or this evening's event. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Jo Carroll and um, Claire Wenham. Uh, jo is based here in London um, in uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's um, European office. He oversees the Foundation's um, relationships with donor governments across Europe, Asia, Pacific and the Middle East. Um, he's been with the foundation for, I think, over 15 years, it looked like, um, but also <laughs> brings a wealth of policy experience um, in senior government and consultancy roles, including a stint um, in the Clinton White House under former President um, Al Gore. Delighted to have you with us. We're also delighted to have um, our own Claire Wenham, who is Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy here at the LSE's um, Department of Health Policy and is the Director of our um, Global Health um, MSC. Um, Claire works at the sort of nexus of global health and international relations, and you may well have seen that she's been a familiar face in the UK media in the last um, couple of weeks, given her expertise on global health security and pandemic preparedness. So we're very lucky to have you both with us. Um, our focus this evening, as you can see from what's up there, is on where we're at with global health. Um, global community signed up in 2015 to the Sustainable Development Goals, the successor to the MDGs. We've got 10 years left. Uh, to meet them. Um, where are we on progress, particularly with SDG 3, ensuring healthy lives and promoting well-being for all at all ages? Uh, the most recent uh, UN 2019 report on progress indicated that there is a long way to go, um, looking like we need to at least double efforts to um, reach uh, achievement on a number of indicators um, with particular burden in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so we will be talking um, this evening about what the challenges are, what progress has been made, um, and what role government and other stakeholders, including um, foundations like the Gates Foundation and the private sector, um, what role they can play in uh, the next decade um, and taking us forward. With that, um, note that the uh, Twitter hashtag for this evening um, are up there, hashtag Shape the World and hashtag Festival. Please do put your phones on silent. Um, this event is being recorded, and so uh, technical um, accidents uh, allowing uh, will be put up as a podcast um, following this evening. So with that, um, I hand over to Joe. Sure. Well... Uh, welcome. Um, I, too, am a bit amazed that you're all here on a Friday night. I guess uh, global health has become a, a bit more in the news these days, um, not always for the right reasons. Uh, but uh, I, I think it is a good opportunity to, to try to take stock, uh, as you say, and thanks for that nice introduction, and, and, uh, and also maybe just give a few reflections on uh, on the road ahead and, and uh, uh, what uh, things like COVID-19 remind us in terms of how far we have to go. Uh, as a community to really make sure that this, uh, this dream of, of uh, global health equity is, is reached by, by 2030, but also a lot of the challenges uh, along the way. I, I should start by saying I had this very sort of surreal experience today, starting my day in, in Bedford uh, at a uh, diagnostics facility where Prime Minister Johnson chose to make an announcement on the UK government's uh, latest round of, of financing. It was great, it was great to see him, great to see uh, the UK's ongoing leadership uh, on this, this current situation. Um, I mean, it was very clear that uh, I think a lot of officials are still getting to grips with just the scale, the magnitude, and, and what's so amazing to me about this uh, recent outbreak is just how much we don't know. So uh, in, in a very sort of, um, you know, closed roundtable kind of way, there, there was the, the prime minister asking some, you know, similar questions that, that I ask around the table with, uh, with my global health colleagues and, and, and around the dinner table at home with friends. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, it, it, is, 
It's scary, to be honest. Uh, what's really, though, reassuring is to have, in this, ca this case, the company was uh, MoLogic. It's a diagnostics company that um, the Gates Foundation has invested in starting in 2016 uh, to really accelerate the development of diagnostic tools that help us uh, detect uh, things like TB and malaria, but increasingly they have a, a candidate that, that they think will be available in the next couple of months, which will um, provide at-home testing kits for, for COVID-19. These are the founders of uh, pregnancy, at-home pregnancy kits in, in 1986. Uh, so what is really encouraging is to see this incredible wealth of science and technology and innovation all coming to bear so quickly on, a, uh, on something like COVID. Uh, you may have read the, the papers today in, in the Financial Times, a, a company called Moderna, in 42 days, it's a, it's a record fastest uh, in, um, in, in history ability to, to put a vaccine candidate uh, forward that uh, unfortunately won't be available, no matter what uh, a president of, uh, of my country says, in a 12 to 18-month uh, time period. But still, it's, it's such an amazing feat of, of human engineering that we're able to, uh, th thanks to the Chinese, uh, really figure out, sequence what this, um, you know, what this virus was, and then through a collective global effort, try to, to, to figure out what's the strategy and how do we start um, you know, really putting the, that ingenuity uh, behind figuring out solutions, in this case for a vaccine, and lots of amazing things happening on, on therapeutics on the drug side as well. So uh, yeah, so it was an interesting start to the day, not, not my typical kind of Friday. Um, I, I will say, despite everything that's gone on, and, and it's, it's so interesting, I've, I've been working on global health for nearly 20 years, more on the the political side of things, but there, every once in a while, um, there's a few of my friends know what I do. Most of them have no idea, but then they start calling when, when you know, something like this happens and says, you know, what are you guys doing? What, do you have any advice to give me? And, and um, so it, it sort of reminds me that global health is, is kind of a tough concept to even understand. What is it? Uh, it's one of the challenges that I think uh, if you're in this line of work, you, you contend with every day. You, you can't help but sort of uh, enter into a really complex uh, set of terminology and, and uh, complex processes. Uh, all that said, you can't look back over the last 20 years and not marvel at just how much progress there has been made. We have a long way to go on the sustainable development goals, it's true, but it's because we set the ambitions so high, as we should have. But when you look at the progress that was made uh, the predecessor of, the, of those SDGs, the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, I mean, just extraordinary strides on, on issues, on diseases, on conditions that were with humanity for decades, hundreds of years in some cases. And so people like Steven Pinker, the late Hans Rosling, I think are right when they say there's no better time to be alive than right now. I mean, on so many levels, although it sometimes can be hard to discern just how uh, you know just how good things are because every you know everywhere you turn there, there's there's a lot of bad news it they, we've made remarkable strides and I could go through lots and lots of data which probably you in this room will know better than I will but on infectious diseases on malnutrition on overall rates of, of poverty and, and in places where for forever you know people thought maybe that's just the way things are we've seen incredible strides so I feel really optimistic I think it's a great time to be uh, looking at this issue even though the challenges as the headlines today tell us are, are really really great thank you and Joe just hearing you you talking there about the progress with the MDGs um, maybe I'm pushing things a little bit here but the progress there would it be were those just easy pickings? Now we've gone for these aspirational goals with the SDGs. We've achieved what we could with some of those vertical diseases, etc. Are we now going into a much harder space where we're having to look systemically at health systems problems, which are much tougher to engage with? Yeah. Are we, are we going to find it as easy to make progress? I think maternal, maternal uh, newborn child health. I mean, one of the, the, the maternal deaths, uh, MDG, was one of the ones we fell pretty far short of. And that was not a... Not a, a, an easy one. So, but I, I certainly I think there are some areas. Uh, I think vaccine coverage. You know, today upwards of ninety percent of, of uh, are, is the is the vaccine is the rate of, of, of uh, early childhood immunization. Um, I think progress on some of those issues has helped give license to thinking about some of these broader things. When you think about immunization, sticking to that example, 
I mean, it's one of the few things in the world. What, what, what's one thing that literally everyone on the planet gets? And some will say it's a, you know, a can of Coca-Cola. Some may say it's a, you know, a used Manchester United football jersey. Wherever you go, there it is. But 90% of kids everywhere, no matter where they're born, are getting vaccines today. It's an amazing thing. And that gives us the license to, to build on the backs of the immunization systems, primary health care systems, which gives us license to think about this, this goal of universal health coverage. So there's no doubt that we're, we're in a very difficult period over the next 10 years picking really difficult problems. But I think that given the extraordinary advances, plus the technology, the science innovation, plus I think and we'll help talk about this a little bit more, uh, increasing the kind of political will, seeing the progress and, and, and getting more people in, in, uh, in uh, decision-making roles to, to commit to these issues. I think we, you know, we will see more progress. So political will is probably a good point to segue to Claire. I'd just say we're very keen for today to be very much a conversation. So I will pass over to Claire to talk for a bit, but I will then open to the floor and try and keep, keep the conversation flowing. So it's very much for open debate. Claire. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Beth, uh, I was told this was in conversation, so, you know, I'm hoping it will be a conversation. Um, I am just going to pick up on something that Joe just said, which was, you know, your meeting this morning and, and asking all those questions of what we don't know. And um, what I wanted to discuss this evening was actually what social science knows already, right? And actually being here at LSE in a social science institution, we know a lot about outbreaks from a social science perspective, which... I currently think are being missed in some of the discussions around coronavirus, or rather they're kind of being told in a, oh my God, this is happening. And actually social science research can show you that this has happened several times before. And I think it's really important to draw on multidisciplinary uh, research when we try and approach outbreaks like coronavirus. Um, and for those of you who, who know me, um, I, my work is all in global health security. So I'm just gonna talk about that this evening and this outbreak of coronavirus. So when the outbreak happens in China, right, we know that, right? Research has told us for decades that we're going to have the next big one. It's going to come out of China. And so why weren't we doing more to prepare in China, for example, could be a question we could ask. But the immediate response then from the global community was, can we trust Chinese data, right? Everywhere you're reading it, and even within the WHO, these questions were being asked. And that's, again, something that we know has been an issue for a long time, right? SARS and the memory of SARS and the, the issues with Chinese transparency of data has been something that the social sciences have been talking about in outbreaks of disease for since 2002 and three. So why can't we learn from, how, from trust building exercises and other areas of social science to build trust in inter outbreak periods, for example? I think we can also see the actions of the WHO in this outbreak as inherently political, as um, they probably wouldn't want to be described. But um, social science tells us this, right? Social science tells us that outbreaks and decisions made around outbreaks, when to declare a pandemic, when to declare a public health emergency, are inherently political. I think you've only got to look at the text of this outbreak and the, the text of the um, declaration of the public health emergency around the coronavirus to see how political it is. It's absolutely not about China, even though all the cases are in China. Now that is, you know, member state politics at play. But the international health regulations, which is, which is the, the piece of international legislation which governs outbreak response um, and outbreak preparedness, uh, puts, puts WHO in a position of authority to decide when we should be making recommendations around travel and trade limitations or, or, or barriers. And currently, there are no WHO recommendations around travel limitations. There's been some minor suggestions around China, but the WHO have been very keen to not put these travel recommendations on. And yet what we're seeing is governments all around the world banning flights from China, banning flights from Iran, banning flights from Italy, and more, you know, more draconian in some places. And this demonstrates, you know, politics, right? This is showing you that at crisis moments, governments don't play ball in the international re arena, right? They don't cooperate globally. All the best, co you know, collective action ideals fall apart at times of crisis. And instead, what governments want to do is they want to demonstrate their output legitimacy to their 
to their electorate. They want to show their, their population that they're doing something, right? Look at me, I'm in, you know, we're in control of this. Even if, like you're sort of saying, Boris Johnson was saying this morning, like we don't have all the answers, I'm going to perform like I've got all the answers to try and allay public panic. We can also think about the economic disruption of this outbreak, right? This is wide-reaching, but again, something that has been entirely predictable through the social sciences for a long time. We've seen for a long time that outbreaks do cause economic disruptions at different levels of governance. But if we know that outbreaks cause economic disruption, and we know that they're very costly to respond to, why haven't we been doing something better to finance outbreaks, right? Why haven't we been thinking more holistically about funding preparedness efforts to be able to detect and respond to outbreaks, or having some sort of pool for financing outbreaks when, uh, for financing the response to outbreaks when they do emerge. Now, we've seen attempts at this, but this outbreak has shown us that, for example, the World Bank's pandemic emergency financing facility isn't fit for purpose. It's shown us that the WHO isn't able to capitalize on its request for 675 million to respond to the outbreak. So there's a gap there that we need to somehow think about innovatively to finance outbreaks in the future. And these are all things that can be predictable. How long have I got? Can I keep going? You can keep going. Okay, I'll keep going. Um, if that's okay with you. So we also see, for example, outbreaks that um, outbreaks distort health agendas, right? An outbreak happens and suddenly all activity in that health system gets diverted to responding to that outbreak, right? Which is good on one hand, but it leaves gaps in other parts, right? We only have to look back to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa to see that um, uh, the, the, the impact of diverting all the funds towards responding to Ebola, all hospitals and, and health facilities were only to respond to Ebola patients, meant that we saw more deaths of women from um, obstetric complications and maternal complications than we saw of people dying from Ebola, right? We've seen inc we saw decreasing rates of um, vaccination coverage in Liberia during the Ebola period and subsequently, which means we're going to see increased rates of under five mortality for vaccine preventable diseases. And so that raises questions of equity within the system, right? And if you're talking about global health equity by 2030, why is it that we're so focused on outbreaks and not on everything else that happens and everything else that affects uh, your, your health? And, you know, what does that mean for someone who's living with a condition which isn't the outbreak in fashion at the moment, right? The one that we're all talking about. And I think on that in particular, what we miss is women, right? Women in outbreaks are widely ignored. And most global health policy that's written is written in a gender-neutral way, right? Responding to outbreaks is as if a man and a woman get and experience outbreaks in the same way. Now, for example, in the coronavirus, we do know that they are almost parable rates of infection between men and women, right? We also know that more men are dying, and we think that might be due to some uh, sex immunological differences, but also through to some gender differences around practices of smoking in China. But what about the secondary impacts, right? When they shut schools, who's the one picking up the kids and not going to work, right? When uh, they've stopped routes of... Uh, they put travel bans in between Hong Kong and Singapore and... Hong Kong and uh, Philippines and in Indonesia, what happens to the foreign domestic workers, you know, the nannies, the, the care workers, who aren't able to travel to work, right? Aren't able to return to work after Chinese New Year. These are heavily gendered issues which don't get talked about in outbreaks. And that leads me on to think about the question of human rights in outbreaks, right? Human rights in outbreaks never really get thought about, right? And I think, if anything, this coronavirus outbreak tells us that, right? Yes, okay, quarantine works from an epidemiological perspective, but what's the, down, what's the, what's the trade off around civil liberties, right? What's the trade off about putting these quarantines on? And are we happy with that as a society? And these are all things that social sciences have talked about and can talk about. And I think it's really important that when we think about where are we on global health and where are we on this coronavirus outbreak, that voice of social sciences doesn't get missed. <laughs> no, I hadn't thought of the gender piece. I still am sort of thinking a little bit about that piece. And I think to your earlier question, um, you know, why weren't we better prepared? I still find 
really befuddling. I do think, and I'll look to the social science experts to maybe help a little bit here. I think, you know, humanity's ability to kind of plan for long-term disaster is is just an inherently challenging thing. I think, you know, politicians think and four-year cycles, what am I going to, to get? I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to, to um, you know, put the groundwork together to make sure that, that the world is better prepared. Uh, you know, Bill Gates and was part of a, uh, an expert group in 2015, 2016, uh, coordinated by Chancellor Angela Merkel as part of their G7 and then G20, uh, that brought together some of the best minds around to say, how do we as a world better prepare ourselves for, uh, for these epidemics? And, you know, I think one of the good things that did emerge was this Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, now a Norway-based organization that's tried to pool some donor funding uh, and start work now on epidemics that, that haven't yet uh, become problems, so that once and if they become Outbreaks. Some of that that uh, that preclinical work is is already done. But even that, I was with the head of uh, with Richard Hatchett, the head of this organization today, who's you know he it, it was a chronically woefully underfunded effort. They're scrambling now to to get uh, additional funding for. They have eight vaccine candidates now in in the works. Um, to make sure that uh, they can, they have more, uh, and I think interestingly, they, they want to have more candidates, not so that they increase the likelihood of success, but that once successful, that that equitable access is, is uh, I think we're going to have a really difficult problem once you start having some uh, companies developing vaccines and how does that distribution uh, system work. So the more uh, candidates we have, the more successful ones we have, I think, better. But I think, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's too soon to start thinking about how we put in place a system in the future that's better resilient against these kinds of outbreaks in, in the future. I hope it's, it's uh, you know, a, a lesson that, that uh, you know, again, we're very far from, from looking back at anything. That, but I still hope that that's part of the, the thinking that goes into how we as a world make sure that all of these great advances and progress uh, indicators that we've seen that, that uh, things like COVID don't don't set us back. Which which would take me on to um, what made me think. One of the things you were talking there is building trust in the inter outbreak break periods and the way that um, the COVID outbreak um, has shown how quickly um, respect for international regulations um, breaks down. Um, I wonder when we're talking about sort of coronavirus as a lens to look at the um, STGs, um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the sort of multilateralism being on the wane and the rise of um, bilateralism, of nationalism, and coronavirus obviously brings that um, to the fore. We've also got these rising players like China starting to play a much more significant um, role in the sort of global governance scene. What are the implications in terms of sort of global health agenda, achieving the SDGs, what lessons do we need to take from that? That's a big question. <clears throat> I like my big questions. <clears throat> I mean, I think that we've got to think, I mean, taking coronavirus aside, right, and, and um, I think we've got to think holistically about the role of China in global health governance more broadly, right? I mean, China is a, such a major player in global health uh, in terms of building infrastructure, in terms of development of, of vaccines, uh, you know, and it's not talked about in social sciences or, re or relatively, and particularly maybe not in, in um, English language social sciences at least. Maybe there's lots going on in China social sciences, but I, I'm not privy to that. But, you know, we need to understand the implications of this, right? Because it's all very well that, you know, students come to LSE and we can say, oh, donor government's bad and aid conditionality is bad and, and you know, that's an old, old discourse that we can, we can still talk about, but we don't know what the new impact is, right? We don't know what the impact's going to be of China's increasing involvement in Africa, for example, right? We don't know what's going to be the impact of, of that changing dynamic, right? And it's, it's not necessarily a South-South collaboration, but it's a sort of Southeast collaboration. And, and what does that mean in our understanding of global health? How, how are Gates preparing for that? I know Gates have got a new China strategy and they're sort of investing more in that space. Is that... Yeah, I mean, it, you know, when I started working at the, the, the foundation, you know, China still had huge uh, poverty rates and, and disease rates and, and, you know, and 
China has really shown the way in so many respects um, in bringing 800 plus million people out of poverty in a, in a historically very short period of time. Uh, you know, China has a lot to offer the rest of the world in, in terms of um, how to, to uh, you know, how to think about agriculture and, and systems. And so I, I, we're engaging very heavily. I think China increasingly as an actor in these kinds of situations, we have got to figure out how best to engage uh, uh, the Chinese. And, you know, we, we get very encouraged when the Chinese stand up a, a new aid agency that promises to to think about how to engage more as a as a multilateral partner, um, I think some of it, you know some of that has fallen short in terms of how much they're contributing to things like the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, Malaria, you know, Gavi, or you know some two multilaterals that uh, you know collectively have have helped save millions and millions of lives. So I think there's there's more to do. I think the Chinese, uh, you know, rightly so, are saying they want to do it in a way that they've learned by experience and not necessarily just fold their efforts and their resources into, into a, you know, another way of doing it. I think there's a, a lot to be learned from the ways that China has done it. You know, I will say just on the question of, of uh, you know, multilateralism, and I think if there ever was, uh, you know, a, a reminder about a situation of, you know, why the global and global health is, is so resonant, it's, it's been this, this current outbreak, and it's a reminder that, an outbreak anywhere is a threat everywhere. So, uh, you know, again, uh, I, a colleague sent to me recently an article that uh, was uh, written, that was, um, uh, that came out in The Guardian that talked about the response by the Trump administration. Um, There's a February 27th article as potentially his, his Chernobyl moment. Um, just because the, the, the reaction was slow, I think there's still a lot of questions about who's in charge leading the, the U.S. effort. So, I hope it is a reminder why multilateralism does matter. And I think that, again, if you look at some of the successes, you know, over the last you know, 18 months or so, the world has collectively uh, contributed $26 billion, starting with the global financing facility, the global, fund, the global fund to fight AIDS, TB, malaria, $2.6 billion for the global polio eradication, and uh, inshallah, a, a very good replenishment for the uh, Gavi Alliance, which uh, pr provides immunizations for kids living in poor countries, which co is coming up in, in June. So I think it is a reminder that, that leadership matters, these multilateral organizations matter, uh, and sometimes these moments trigger that reminder that, that uh, we really do need to pull together when the world is just getting you know, smaller. And where do philanthropic organizations like Gates fit into that multilateral structure? You know, they're, 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 we're seeing them sort of changing the balance of power, as it were, given the amount of money they're able to bring to the table, which is you know, out, outrunning the, the development aid and budgets of most countries. How, how, what, how should they go forward and where do you see their role over the next decade? Well, by, by any measure, the n amount of philanthropic capital that's going to be coming into the system is, is going to be extraordinary over the, uh, you know, over the next decade or two. Uh, you know, the $10 billion announcement by Jeff Bezos on, on climate, the Zuckerbergs, I mean, I think philanthropic capital will continue to be um, increasing in the future. Now, how that gets spent... You know, we spend a lot of time on something uh, called the Giving Pledge, which is a, a, an effort launched by Bill Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett, to try to encourage people of these uber high net worth uh, range to, to uh, pledge at least half of their wealth uh, to, to, towards philanthropy, either in their lifetime or, or you know, upon their death. Uh, and I think that has had an impact in terms of the expectation that people who are of those means um, should have in terms of how to how to dispose of their wealth and not sort of per, uh, perpetuate this dynastic kind of uh, uh, inheritance for for generations. I think um, where philanthropic capital can can play its its uh, best role is when it is willing to go into high risk areas and not high vanity areas. Uh, and really kind of go into things like who's going to develop the next HIV vaccine? Where are you going to go find scientific innovations that, that don't e exist today where markets have uh, shied away, where governments have shied away simply because they're too risky? Or where can philanthropic capital be leveraged um, uh, because it has, can afford to take a much longer time horizon, so patient uh, capital? And I think that's, those are two areas where I think you know, philanthropy has, because... 
you know, we don't uh, have to answer to voters who uh, will vote Bill and Melinda out of their jobs as benefactors of the Gates Foundation, so they can take a 30-year horizon, even though they're very impatient people. But is that um, lack of oversight and lack of answerability an issue? I ask that. Um, I mean, there are definitely questions around that, I mean, exactly what you've just said, right? The fact that, that voters don't, don't vote for philanthropists, right? And so then what form of accountability or do, do philanthropists have in this, right? Um, they decide what they want to fund. And how do we guarantee that that aligns with what the populations who are going to be affected by whatever innovation it is get to say in what that is, right? You know, we vote for governments um, and we, you know, vote them on with, a, with, a, with their manifesto. And, you know, we don't have that same ability with, with philanthropists. So how do we ensure that there is that feedback loop to be able to ensure the kind of good governance principles that we see in most liberal democracies of kind of, you know, transparency, accountability, and making sure that, that you are working for the people if that's the kind of the aim of, of what it is. And I guess the kind of the other sort of question is, well, what happens particularly in low-income settings where governments then get used to philanthropist money or philanthropy involvement in certain areas of the health system and then that money dries up or other priorities are identified? And, you know, how does dependence on actors like philanthropists create perhaps longer-term tensions in health system planning? They're not easy, easy questions. I mean, I think that the, on the first point we consult widely in the scientific community, whether it's on, on the global health, we have an independent uh, scientific advisory board that comes in and looks very closely at all of our strategies, we publish all of our strategies online. We have a, a similar group on the education side where we're very active in, uh, in the United States, um, where we consult widely with a wide set of stakeholders to say, you know, and try to be as transparent as we possibly can. And, we adhere to all of the guidelines and requirements as a, as a 501c3 entity. Um, I, I do think that uh, you know, Bill and Melinda have chosen two areas where indisputably there is a lot of, of need. And on the health and education side of, of, of the world, there's just a, an incredible amount that, that, that can be done that, um, frankly, private capitalism isn't working as well as it could be, or government funding for, for the reasons I cited. So I think there is that place. But you know, we welcome that debate on how that mix of, of, uh, uh, of, of private, public, plus philanthropic capital can best be used and utilized to, uh, to, to affect the greatest change. I'm keen to open the conversation up. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. Um, if you could just um, give us your name and affiliation before you do and keep the questions brief so we can get as many people as possible. I'm going to take them in groups of threes. Um, so I can see um, one over there, I can see one down here, and I can see one over at the front. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Melody Ladron de Guevara. Um, I'm an LSE alumni uh, from the uh, 2014 MSc class in social policy and development. And uh, looking at your... Um, theme, I guess, for today's discussion about um, recent successes, lessons learned, and so forth. Um, from my educational background, I would suggest to change the paradigm or the frame a bit. Instead of focusing on agencies, I would focus more on what um, countries within this global health paradigm have actually achieved in terms of successes, in recent successes. And um, from experience, I know um, in the areas of um, AIDS and tuberculosis, uh, Peru has done very well in those two areas. They have managed to eradicate it 100%, and they also put in place preventive measures. So in that sense, if, we, if we're talking about um, successes, they have done the best. And in the case of malaria, which is more widespread, and it also includes some remote areas in the world, I am aware that uh, Mexico, Mexico has taken a very good approach uh, and perspective on that. And they have been absolutely successful in terms of not allowing one case of malaria in their, in their, um, in their area. So uh, for those reasons, um, since you are focusing on the paradigm of global health, I would suggest um, for a, a space for a presidency for Peru in this area, as well as some, a kind of opus dei for Mexico, because they have really uh, managed to 
um, uh, make uh, the world a more digestible place in terms of global health, which is what you are discussing. Thank you. Thank you. And there's one just up there on the left. Um, hi. Uh, thanks very much. Um, my name is Paddy. Um, I actually work for DFID, but not really, um, not quite new to the global health um, perspective. It was, my question is actually for Claire. Claire was really interested by your insight earlier around social sciences, ensuring that we're not missing that. Um, uh, you also mentioned Ebola, and, and one of my thoughts was about the recent Ebola outbreak, or the continuing Ebola outbreak in the DRC. It feels like, again, that's a sort of urgent response which initially uh, missed the social science angle um, and has continued to face challenges because of that. I really want to ask, how do we make sure we're not missing that? Um, what, do, what, do, what role do donors uh, play there um, in making sure that doesn't happen? How do the WHO themselves make, make more space or integrate their social sciences in, into these responses, um, as well as um, a, a view from local governments or, or the regional perspectives as well. But that would be really interesting to hear more about that. Thank you. Um, my name is Andrea. I was uh, wondering if there any, any study has been done on uh, the effectiveness of uh, uh, sort of this private philanthropic capital versus uh, uh, multi, uh, multi-governmental um, money been spent. And I was wondering uh, as a, <clears throat> if people have been looking at the idea of uh, maybe having a, a multi, a global taxation on billionaires. So, I mean, the question is whether uh, does uh, Cyril and, uh, make a better job than the WHO? Uh, why not just tax uh, billionaires, but not give it to states, give it to straight to the uh, WHO. So the states are just, uh, um, well, they're just the collectors of taxes Then they, from, from billionaires. They go straight to a, uh, WHO. So there is no um, issue about uh, sort of electoral cycles. Um, so a global billionaire tax for health. Mm. <laughs> right. Come on. Cut out the middleman. <laughs> okay, so what countries have achieved with some lessons from South America? Um, how do we keep the social science angle in and attacks on global billionaires? Claire uh, first? Sure. Um, so I think that, that tax on billionaires was suggested by Elizabeth Warren, and I'm pretty certain Bill Gates didn't did. like that idea. <laughs> I don't think he minded it too much. The question um, whether it's going to be effective. I think, I mean, look, I think it's a, it's a great idea if you can get them to sign up to it. And I think you've, you've also got to remember, though, is there's a lot of um, philanthropic and or private money going into the WHO already, but it goes through on voluntary programs, right? So you can say, I want this money to go to HIV. So w, the WHO doesn't maintain the mandate to decide what it's spent on. They are just the kind of processor and deliverer then of the, the program. So you know, it doesn't give you that kind of... Uh, Democratic accountability. It's still you still are left of that without, you know, reforming the financing structure of the WHO. But I mean, I'm I'm all for taxing billionaires. I think it's a great idea. Um, I in, to go to your question around the Ebola outbreak and and you know what does it happen when you miss social science? Well, so <clears throat> we did some work on the uh, West African Ebola outbreak, and and our findings basically were that. The problem with the way the outbreak was set up at the start was it was framed as a global health problem, right? And if you frame it as a global health problem, it leads to public health actors leading the show, right? We have ministries of health, the WHO, and it's very medicalized, right? And then when that system became overwhelmed, the system didn't know what to do, right? And instead of working within the UN system, working with UN OCHA, working with medical humanitarians who had the, the wherewithal and the know-how of how to manage the kind of crisis... Um, it was it was challenged, and I think you know what's missing in this is is politics, right? And I, and I mean I'll put my hands up. I'm a political scientist, so I always think everything's political, and we should always bring politics in. But you know the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the the key thing for social sciences was it demonstrated the vital role that anthropologists can play in outbreak response, right? It was anthropologists who were the ones who figured out how to communicate with um, local communities that burial sites and and burial practices was what was continuing transmission, right? And because of that, 
they've kind of bought their seat at the table in outbreak response, right? Now there's always an anthropologist involved. And the problem is, is that a lot of the global health community, and I say well, the public health community, think anthropologist is social science, right? And can do all of social science. And I think anthropologists are great and have absolutely nothing against them. But I think what's missing is, is the political scientist, right? And in the DRC outbreak, right, that's what's happening in a complex political environment with warring factions and, and different groups and without having the political expertise, you're never going to be able to manage that outbreak. And yet political scientists weren't drawn into the discussion. And I wonder whether the coronavirus, with all the political things that we can talk about and we see in the papers, is going to be that, that moment where global health realizes, okay, we need anthropologists, we also need political scientists, we also need economists, and recognizes the breadth of, of what social science can offer to outbreaks. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that, that uh, on the question about Ebola, um, one of the things that, that has um, confounded me, you know, having to go out and, and try to raise uh, resources and, and, and generate some of the political will, is why we haven't learned as a community to figure out how the financing for these outbreaks could be more efficient. Um, you know, there, there is this pattern that many of you may have seen that if there's a human catastrophe, inevitably there's a, a call for funding. Uh, there's a, you know, immediately a, a you know, very kind of uh, generally responsive effort that, where the public is, is asked to, uh, through appeals, contribute. Donors inevitably get together in, in some city around the world. They, they try to, to uh, make promises of things that sometimes they keep or don't. Uh, the money then is, is, has to be uh, chased. Donations sometimes take years and years. And it just seems to me that, you know, this kind of inefficiency that we could as a community get much more efficient at. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, the UK really should take credit in, in, more, so, in more ways than they do is the, the uh, creation of this innovative financing facility for immunization, something that uh, uh, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, championed, and that was the, this facility that could help um, get countries to make long-term commitments, and using those commitments, you could uh, sell bonds into the community and, and front load, you could generate a, a ton of money, in that, which was the case in, in immunization. The similar facility could be used for things like Ebola or could be used for, for COVID-19 with a lot greater efficiency so that when you have these exogenous shocks to the system, we're not starting from, from new every, every time. I love the idea of more predictable financing for the WHO. The poor WHO every year is out there trying to raise money for, and you're right, they have these assessed and voluntary contributions with more and more donors saying, you know, picking projects, picking particular parts of the world, populations where they want their money to go, and, and you know, how's an organization to run on, on this? So I, I think it's a huge uh, challenge. I would love to figure out more ways that we can uh, get the, uh, the organizations like the WHO, which do great work, uh, to have that longer-term predictability so they could focus more on, on the work at hand and be less in the, uh, in the business of fundraising. I'd say the same around some of these other organizations, these multilateral organizations that I mentioned, which every three to five years have to go back out to donors and they start these big campaigns and I see my colleague Gail Smith there, who is the CEO of the, the One Campaign, who used to run USAID, and, you know, and she and, and I and others uh, here in the UK and other parts of the world are, you know, have to kind of go out and make the case to donors these years. When, you know, and I think you, these are the kinds of organizations should, that should be able to, to um, uh, be supported through the results and the impact. And if they're not doing the kind of work that they should be doing, then they should be shut down. But otherwise, we should get more efficient at, at how we, we generate funding for, uh, for global health. I, I fully agree with you. Okay, let's take three more. I can see one up there, one just here, and another one across the passage over there. Hi, um, I'm Paula Christen. I'm at Imperial College, and I'm doing a PhD on um, how knowledge is transferred between scientists and resource allocation decision makers at Gavi. Um, I'm wondering how the resource allocations with respect to mathematical model findings could be optimized and what, you, what value you see in mathematical models. Um, I, I think the, um, 
the most important organizations that do super-duper research in um, drug development are pharmaceutical companies. However, they operate in a free market environment and they're only answerable to shareholders, and that's fair. That's the way the system is. Um, are we doing enough to try and incentivize pharmaceutical companies to help with um, global sort of disease issues? And in particular, I'm thinking about antibiotics. So a lot of people are predicting a massive problem as drug resistance emerges and we need new antibiotics fast. I know the EU Commission is very frustrated that pharmaceutical companies have not gone into developing new antibiotics, but is there a way of incentivizing them or is it just impossible to deal with an organization that's just based on profits? Uh, good evening, my name is uh, Tara Harms. I work for PwC in the uh, Disruption Innovation Team. Um, Joe, you started your talk off about talking about the ingenuity and engineering capabilities and innovations of humanity, and um, my question is related to that. So we live in a world now where in, in the UK, in uh, developed nations, you can do remote consultations with your GP. Um, we might not be far away from medicine delivery via, via drones, and worldwide, even in developed nations, you now have more people who have access to mobile phones than to clean water. So I wonder, where do you see the role of technology in providing healthcare access worldwide? Okay, so we've got Gavi in mathematics, incentives of pharma and technology. Joe. Uh, well, I love the question on the pharmaceutical companies. I love the question, uh, all questions actually, but um, I think that's a you know, particularly sensitive one where, where I think there's been a lot of active debate. And, um, and I do think it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I think organizations like uh, the, the Global Fund and Gavi, which depend on the innovations that are generally coming from pharmaceutical companies, have to figure out ways that they, they have a great deal of transparency in how the procurement goes. Um, what we've tried to do at the Gates Foundation, since a lot of the innovation that we fund um, may start out in, in small biotech companies, and, but, but oftentimes is, is with pharmaceutical companies, is to make sure that in our grant agreements that no matter what uh, is, is produced, that that, that um, is delivered you know, at cost or below for populations in, in poor countries a so-called access agreement, which we've been, uh, we've debated now for, for quite some time and, uh, and tried to get more pharmaceutical companies to really understand this, this kind of pricing model. Um, I think with respect to um, uh, how to engage the, the innovation, I mean, you know, GSK, which tops the list of uh, the so-called access to medicines index, which is something the foundation created, which is to, to really monitor what is the commitment of global companies and, and rank them. And it's you know never surprising how companies really like to be at the top and never like to be at the bottom of rankings. It's a it's a interesting incentive system. But I, I think through that, um, you know, there have been uh, ways to, to draw in the expertise of, of pharmaceutical companies like GSK. And one example of that is the uh, the AMC or the um, access no the advanced market commitment, which is an incentive that, that donors put together to say here are the specifics that, that we need. We need a, a vaccine at this cost um, that's available to protect these kinds, these strains of, in this case, a pneumococcus vaccine. Um, and they put that out there, and, and companies responded. Uh, and it was a $1.7 billion uh, advanced market commitment that really helped um, pave the way for a, a pneumococcus vaccine that was available probably 10 or 15 years earlier than it, than it would have been. So I do think there's this tension between how you draw companies in uh, and, and, and try to navigate some of the issues around um, in, inherently profit-making uh, organizations. I think I, I'm a big believer in the, the, the potential of, of technology. I, you know, one of the um, most amazing things that I was able to, to witness was drone delivery of, of blood supply uh, throughout Rwanda. It's amazing um, that, you know, that uh, what some of these kinds of technologies are going to be able to, uh, to provide. I mean, you know, I think beyond the health space, I'm always amazed at the agriculture science that, that, that goes on here. We got to take Bill to Scotland to go see cows uh, not too long ago, and he was amazed by some of the livestock research. One of the things I'm most excited about is, is um, something that started at, at uh, Norwich, um, 
but it's a nitrogen-fixing uh, plant that's able to draw nitrogen out of the air and, and, and eliminate the use of, of, of fertilizers, a U.K. innovation that could revolutionize uh, how uh, farmers in poor countries uh, can, can grow uh, and grow more. Uh, product of, uh, and so I, yes, I'm a, I'm a big believer. As you, probably not surprising, working for Bill Gates, that uh, technology will, I think, have a huge role in in, uh, in a lot of the issues we've been talking about. Um, I guess I'll just push you on that last thing you said, which is that technology is, you know, I, I guess spin that question on its head, right? Is technology going to have a large role in the future because that's what's needed, or because that's what's being offered by the Gates Foundation, mm. right? And, like, is that the best solution to a lot of problems, right? Would, would more basic system strengthening be better, right? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's one that needs to be asked, right? Like, what's the motivating factor in that? Or are we saying, in essence, are the systems ready for the technology? Yeah. yeah. Well, what's, what's the motivating factor for the Gates Foundation to be pushing technology on poor people? Well, just, you know... Uh, if that's the if that's the interest, right? Like innovation and vaccines and 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 I'm not saying I I, I fully believe in vaccines, right? But I I uh, just to be clear, just to be really clear. But is that always the right solution? Is my question. Well, no, I'm not going to tell you. A vaccine is always the right solution for every health. But, but technology, as in a technological approaches, are they always the right solution? No, of course not. Of course not. And that's why we're out there advocating kangaroo care for moms who uh, who are of newborns uh, to make sure that their ancient methods that uh, that she practices to make sure that her baby's uh, healthy. We are out there, and and we've you know had Melinda talk to the Pope about exclusive breastfeeding as one of the best ways to, to you make sure that, that kids live through the first critical days of, uh, of, of her life. Absolutely. I mean, what we're after is making sure that under five child mortality is the thing that every day we get up and say, how we make sure that number gives, gets halved. And I think there are technology-based solutions. And access to healthcare has been one of the biggest impediments where technology affords some, some of that. And I do think that we think of technology sometimes as a product you know, some gas, you know, uh, gizmo. But a lot of times it's just making sure that we have the innovation that can reduce uh, the cost of some of those things. You know, one of the biggest things, the drivers of the foundation is making sure that there used to be a 10 to 15 year lag time between when products that my kids would get, uh, you know, were available to kids in, in poor countries. And in so many ways we've been able to reduce that. And those are, in many cases, technological solutions. It could be a, a, a vial of vaccine that's now suddenly able to withstand heat or cold for much longer. Is that a technology? It's the same vaccine that my kids have gotten. It just has this cool formulation that means that it doesn't go bad. So I don't know. I think technology is going to come in lots of forms. We've got time for one more round. I've got one at the front here. I'm going up the top there. Uh, yes. And I feel like we haven't gone around. Okay, one over this side. Sorry. <laughs> I think it was the oh, I was actually the gentleman behind you. Oh, goodness. Okay. Oh. Go on. We'll make it four. Go for it. Cheers. Uh, Tom Jackson, uh, former LSE student. Um, we talk about outbreaks and pandemics, but a global health issue across the world is mental health, um, suicides, anxiety, depression. Um, I was just wondering what the Gates Foundation does towards that and also kind of from the political aspects of mental health as well. And yeah, exactly, immediately behind you. Yeah, uh, I'm Yao, uh, Hongjun Yao from Shanghai. Uh, talking about coronavirus, um, I appreciate your thankfulness for the Chinese government's sharing of the information for the sequence and also appreciate the support from other countries. Uh, um, though we didn't uh, start and spread the coronavirus intentionally, um, we did cause some damage for the other kind of, for other peoples. So um, my question is: If the coronavirus is started and spread by the UK or the US or other the most uh, uh, developed countries, will the country be taken um, responsible for the damage suffered by other countries? 
Excuse me, sir, because I have I've raised my hands up. But you think like you ignored me three times. <laughs> this, this, and is, I, this is out of control now. You can't just pass the microphone back. Uh, <laughs> can, sorry for interruption, because I am also a Chinese student and I'm a prospective student who uh, studied from the university outside London, but just attend the lectures in LSE. And I and I have received uh, one. Uh, the proposal of Boeing coins all the colleges and universities uh, in UK, and they are and these are my Chinese uh, Chinese friends, and they are trying to claim more support and spread out this proposal through social media like WeChat, Instagram, and they have collected more than forty thousand signatures for agreement by so far. Uh, so my question is that, in your opinion, is it necessary for taking the reaction for boycotting so many classes in UK? And if so, how to compensate for the economic loss, especially for the tuition fee and uh, accommodation payment, because they are so expensive uh, for international students? Mm -hmm. That's my question. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And then there was one more. What are you going to do about that? What? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Thank you. Back in control. <coughs> Go for it. Hello. Uh, firstly, thank you very much for that. It was really interesting. Uh, my question kind of is coming back to the whole um, the millenn Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals and how perhaps we cherry-pick the easier ones first. And maybe that it's kind of a question, do you think that's perhaps because we had so many vertical programs initially? And now a lot of the things that we need to focus on require a bit more of a horizontal approach and if so how are donors specifically philanthropic organizations perhaps helping or hindering that um, and I guess what can we do to change that I mean I obviously understand that philanthropic organizations are helping and it is good but is that completely helpful or is that harming um, any potential additional growth Hi there, I'll try to be quick. So there was a talk earlier today about the population and its effect on the environment. And there's a strong argument for needing to limit population growth in order to minimize the damage we're having on the environment. So I'm being a bit of a devil's advocate by asking this question, but do you think that achieving global health and environmental sustainability contradict each other in any way? Great, thought we needed to get the climate change angle in here. Okay, so we've got mental health, coronavirus and boycotting classes, um, vertical versus horizontal, um, and climate change. Good. Well, if I'm only over three minutes, I can just focus on the ones I want to. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that, yes, uh, in the answer to the question about the MDGs and SDGs and cherry picking, I think that, you know, there's something to be said for if you're an organization or a government who is trying to demonstrate what they're doing, it's really easy to pick. Well, it's easier to pick the things that you can measure, right? It's much easier to pick interventions around disease-specific things or, you know, cherry-picking the easy ones, as you described it, because then you can demonstrate what you've done, right? So for your four-year electoral cycle, you can say, let this is what I've done in the last four years. You should keep electing me because I'll keep doing it. But, we you know, the bigger things, UHC, it's just, it's just such a lot of money and it takes such a lot of time and it's so difficult to demonstrate impact, right? So whether you're a private sector organisation, a philanthropic organisation, a government, it's really hard to do. And I think people are doing it, and increasingly they are doing it. And I don't always think we recognize that, right? Like, there's a lot of effort going in, but because you can't measure it and show a shiny graph about all the successes, you don't, they don't talk about it as much, right? And, um, you know, I actually think that things like the, those longer-term things are the things that philanthropists can really contribute to because they've got that flexibility to say, well, I'm not accountable to my electorate and I'm not accountable to shareholders, so we can throw all our money into things which don't need to demonstrate results in particularly short time frames. So I think that's something that philanthropists really should be contributing to, to um, global health. And we're out of time, so I'm going to answer that question. Joe. I'm encouraged that the foundation, the Gates Foundation, may do, start doing more in the, in the field of mental health. I mean, Mil Melinda Gates, in her personal capacity, through her office, uh, Pivotal Ventures, is doing more on the issue of mental health. And, and we, we have a, a, something called the Goalkeepers, which is an event in, uh, generally in New York during the uh, UN General Assembly week in September that, that uh, last year highlighted some really good examples of, of how mental health interventions are, are, are working. So I hope... I hope that's uh, on the rise. I know it's a big issue. I, th I think on the question of um, uh, 
the cherry picking again and, and whether there's too much verticalization. I, I think that we definitely appreciated how much we were too vertically siloed and needed to, to start uh, horizontalizing, uh, appreciating just how much uh, that kind of disease-specific lens wasn't going to achieve some of the, the goals. And I think there's just generally a much more appreciation. I think people have to also remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the rates of malaria, 1.7 million deaths a year. I mean, AIDS we don't talk about. As a, as a crisis. Again, you know, uh, Product Red, an organization that we uh, fund through, that's part of the One campaign, you know, it has to really kind of remind people that AIDS is still an emergency and an issue that we really need to continue to fund. But, but I, I like to think that the progress, again, that we've made on some of these issues gives us license to think about some of these bigger issues like health systems. I think in, in your, your, your point about uh, our, our, is sustainability and, and global health compatible? Absolutely, because healthier families choose to have fewer kids. We've seen it for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, you can't find a, a society that, that um, when, they ride, when they've increased health outcomes hasn't uh, declined in, in, uh, in, in terms of fertility. So uh, it's, it's one of the things I get asked all the time. It's like, aren't you just promoting more population? When, and the, the truth is no. And I think you could, you could go and, and, and look at some of the Gapminder work that Hans Rosling has, has done, and he shows it you know, over periods of hundreds of years where every society, as they get healthier, choose to have smaller kids. So I think there's, I think you know, global health is absolutely aligned with a, with a positive climate and sustainability strategy. Okay, we are out of time. I would say on the climate change and the planet issue, the Global Health Initiative has got a focus on planet and climate change across the next month, and we've got a number of events, of events coming up, including a film screening of 2040, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you all um, for coming. Thank you to our...